0: Psalm 37, I'd like to just give a simple lesson here as we read uh, David's psalm. There's so many good verses, so many good verses in this psalm, Psalm 37, and I want to start in verse 1, and maybe you can relate to some of these things that David David says. Um, Ask an interest in your prayers and pray the Lord will bless us for a few moments this morning. Psalm 37, David says, and I'm sure he's saying this not only to others, but he's saying it to himself. He's kind of preaching a sermon to himself. You know, uh, when I was a young man and wasn't sure if the Lord was calling me to preach, uh, I found as I was beginning to, to grow in my studies that uh, one night coming home from a church meeting in South Georgia, uh, I just started thinking about the mercies of the Lord and started preaching. And there was nobody else in the car, but I just started preaching to myself and got excited in the Lord. And that was kind of a confirmation to me that maybe the Lord was... Call me to preach that I could just uh, have a desire to do that, even when it was only myself listening. But David, he's probably preaching to himself as well as a song that's for the blessing of God's people. He says, "Fret not thyself because of evil you Young people know what fret means. You know what the word fret means, Asa? What does it mean? Lisa, if you don't do this then i do this. That's a good guess. The word fret. Like stress. Yeah, that's right. Fret means to worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be upset. Don't be afraid. Don't fret yourself because of evildoers. Now, can anybody relate to David here? Don't fret yourself because of evildoers. And we're going to see why he, um, he's afraid or why he's worrying about evildoers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. So the idea here that he's saying is, look, you don't need to get upset, you don't need to get afraid, you don't need to be envious when people you see that clearly aren't serving God seem to be doing quite well. They seem to be uh, having lots of friends, they seem to be making lots of money, they seem to be having good health. He says, don't cause that to... Don't allow allow that to cause you to be anxious and don't be envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. So he's going to set up for us some things that we're to do in contrast with being anxious and worrying and being envious against the prosperity and the blessings that the wicked have. Now, I want to go to Psalm 73. And I'm sure you've heard this verse before, but here, uh, this is actually Asaph. So David's writing Psalm 37. Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. And Asaph had learned not to be envious of the wicked. And he says in verse 17, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. And I'm going to bring you, I'm going to read the whole context of what he's saying here. He was struggling. He was having some doubts. He was doubting God's sovereignty. It's kind of like Job. You say, you know, I'm trying to serve the Lord and put Him first. And all of these trials are just building up and building up. And it seems like the wicked, they're just prospering in their evil desires. And he says, it wasn't until I went To the house of the Lord. When I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. So it's good for you to be here today, if for no other reason than to be reminded of what Asaph learned, and that is how things are going to work out in the end. The way that it's going to work out for the wicked, and the way it's going to work out for the Lord's people. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps. "...had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." Maybe you can't relate. But here Asaph and David both have struggled in their walk with the Lord because they saw how the wicked were prospering and they said, "...I was envious, I wanted what they had, I want what the world has." And he says, "...and it caused me to slip." And you know you can read in the book of First Timothy chapter six, and Paul talks about those who desire to be rich, and he says they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. When you make God, when you make your God money, and getting rich and being wealthy, he says, you can pierce yourselves through with many sorrows. Some teach that uh, gain is godliness, but Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Maybe you can't relate, but I'll tell you, almost every day I have to lay down that idol and that desire for making money. The desire for being rich. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And yet, the world's constantly telling you, you've got to lay up treasures upon earth. Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust is not corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Asaph's experience was that there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them as, about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know, and is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. This is what he's telling himself. And washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I shall offend against the the generation of thy children. And he says, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction." How are they brought unto desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? So he had to come to the house of the Lord. He had to come to God's sanctuary to get a heavenly perspective on all these things that we view in our life and that cause us to worry and cause us to be envious against the wicked. To the child of God, Psalm 37, he says, Rather than fretting yourself and being envious, he says, Trust in the Lord and do good trust in the Lord and do good. It reminds me a lot of the hymn that we sing, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Trust in the Lord and do good. What are we trusting in today? Who are we trusting in? What are we trusting in? I've heard it said that if you have a a large bank account and uh, you get into trouble, then maybe somebody's going to sue you. You can call your lawyer up and you can say, I need you to take care of this problem. I don't care what it's going to cost. You can be trusting in your finances, but here the Bible says for us to trust in the Lord and do good. The Proverbs writer said, in fact, he said, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Why? Because if you have too much, he said, then I might forget the Lord. And if you don't have enough poverty, he says then I might steal and blaspheme. The name of God. So for the child of God, we just need to want, we need to be content with what God's given us. He says, with food and raiment, the Lord Jesus says, with food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Let me mark it down again. We live in a materialistic society. We live in a society that up until this year took a lot of pleasure in going shopping. I mean, with online shopping, you kind of transferred your habits a little bit, but going to the mall, going shopping is a pastime for Americans. We're materialistic. We're consumed with the desire to gain and to acquire, and we have to buy or rent storage facilities for all of the stuff we don't have room for in our house. We need this message of godliness with contentment is great gain. With food and raiment, Jesus says, let us therewith be content. Do you have clothing to wear today? Did you have food to eat today? Then the Bible says for you and for me to be content. Now, that's a hard lesson to learn. I want my family to be well taken care of. You want your families and your loved ones to be well cared for. But the Bible says, with food and raiment, let us therewith be content. For those of you that are newly married, I want to share a lesson with you and maybe are going to get married soon. I want to share a lesson with you that took me a while to learn. And that is, the promises that God gives to you as a single young man or young woman are good for your family if you get married. That God's promise to take care of you and to provide for you, you can apply that to your spouse and to your children. God's going to take care... Of your family. It's going to take care of you. You don't have to worry. You don't have to justify overworking and neglecting spending time with your family because you feel like you've got to be the breadwinner. And another lesson I may have made this point frequently here, I don't recall, but another lesson, men, is that if you provide for your family financially, you haven't done everything God's calling you to do as a man. We live in a society that tells men, I believe, that if you provide enough for your family, if you're earning a good income and your wife can go and buy whatever she wants at the clothing department store, that you've done your job. And that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning, being a provider. God calls you to do much more than just provide for the physical needs of your family. He's calling you to be a leader and to be a spiritual leader in the home, to be a protector and to be... A provider as well for your family. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Now I want to stop here for a minute. Listen to that promise. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Carla and I were talking about this verse, and I think it means you can interpret it two ways. It may mean both, but it probably means one of these, at least one of these things. Delight thyself also in the Lord. If we're delighting in the Lord, if He's our delight, if He's what we desire, and He says, I'm going to give you the desires of your heart, to me that's saying He's going to give you Himself. If He's what you delight in, if He's what you desire in, He's promising to give you Himself. I think the verse at least means that. But we could go further. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. If he's your delight, if Jesus Christ is your desire, if he's the one that you're seeking after, if he's the one that satisfies you, if your prayer and your heart's desire, like the brother prayed this morning, is to see his face, to see him high and lifted up, to be satisfied, like the Bible says, when we see him, when we are in his likeness, and when we behold his glory, If you're delighting yourself in the Lord, then I believe that the desires of your heart are going to be by and large from Him. They're going to be in line with His will. And so you may have a desire uh, for a natural thing like Ella's desire to come to Maryland. Well, if she's delighting in the Lord, the Lord may have put that on her heart. And then he answers that prayer. And what a blessing for our desires to be in line with God's will. So that when we're praying, we're not like James who says you're just praying to consume it upon your lust. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. But your desires and your heart have been brought into conformity to the perfect will of God. And what a blessing it is when we see God answer those things that maybe they're above what we need. They're beyond our our food and our clothing. But we get to see him provide for maybe things that we just want. We just want to go see our family in Maryland. And the Lord blesses that. I remember Sister Debbie Former, real powerful to me when I was a, a teenager at prayer meeting at their house, testifying about how the Lord is so good that she could just have a thought of something that she just, just wanted. And didn't even maybe pray about it, but the Lord would, would provide that and, and give that to her. And I've seen the Lord do that in my own wife's life. We have never been wealthy, but we have never, I tell you, Carla and I both can testify, we have never lacked for any good thing. And that ought to be an encouragement to all of us. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That we can trust Him, We can trust Him with our lives. We can trust Him with our finances. We can trust Him with our family. We can trust Him enough to walk by faith, even when the world may criticize or condemn or or misinterpret your desires to serve Him. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him. And he shall bring it to pass. Another marvelous promise. Commit thy ways unto the Lord. Trust also in him. And he shall bring it to pass. Now, Proverbs tells us in Proverbs chapter 3 that we're to acknowledge the Lord in all our ways. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. That's so easy to do. As human beings, as sinners, it's so easy to lean to your own understanding, to lean to my own understanding. But he says, in all thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Now, I may take it to an extreme, but I would submit to you that that means there's nothing too small to pray about. There's nothing too small in your life. There's no decision that's too small for you to say, well, Lord, I know you're busy. I've got this. I can handle this. It's a small one. He says, acknowledge him not in some of your ways, not in most of your ways. He says, acknowledge him in all of your ways. And if he wants us to acknowledge him in the small details of our life, how much more so when it comes to the life changing implications of like where you're going to go to church or who you're going to marry or how you're going to raise your children or if your wife's going to stay home with your children or if she's going to be out in the workplace, acknowledge him in all your ways. And it says, and he shall direct your paths. And James gives us that wonderful promise that if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God to give it to all men liberally and braideth not and it shall be given him. That ought to be something we've been praying for a great deal this year. And I confess I have not prayed for the wisdom like I need wisdom, like we all need wisdom. Lord, how do you want us to live? How should we live our lives in this season, in this generation? How do you want us to meet together? What's the, what's the safe way? What's the right way? What's the best way to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? You know, I think one lesson that we've gotten from 2020 is this idea of what does it mean to love your neighbor? You know, in 1 John, it talks about how we know that we love the children of God. It's interesting. How do you know you love the children of God? How do you know you love God's people? First John chapter 5, verse 2. Listen, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep His commandments. Isn't that interesting? And what does God say to do? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. When we obey God, we're loving God's children. And when we keep His commandments. When we love God and keep His commandments, He says that's how we show our love to one another. Isn't that interesting? One of the best encouragements you can be to your brothers and sisters is to put the Lord first in your life and to try to serve Him to the best of your ability. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. And He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. That sounds a lot like what Jesus said about letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. When? When you're committing your ways unto Him, when you're delighting in Him, when you're trusting in Him. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Then he says it again Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. You can see this and you can get anxious about it. You can say, You know what? I think I'm going to try to copy their examples. They seem to be prospering. I'm going to copy their example. He says, You don't fret about it. You don't worry about it because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. So I think that's teaching us a lesson here. That The devil, he's crafty. And he can tempt you to do evil by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But he's got one more tactic here that's coming out. And that is because of worry and because of envy and how the wicked are prospering in an evil way. They're not serving the Lord. They're doing great. I'm just going to copy their example. God says, don't fret yourself in any wise to do evil. Don't allow yourself to be enticed because you see that they seem to be uh, uh, prospering in an evil way. Remember the psalm that we read in Psalm 73. He says, I remembered, I saw the end when I went to the sanctuary of the Lord. He saw the, their end. He remembered the truth. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. You remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Guess where he gets that from? He says, those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Not those that are smarter than everyone else. Not those that have a better uh, business idea. Not those who are stronger than everyone else. That's the way the world views it. If you've got bigger muscles, then you're going to be able to put everybody else down. If you've got bigger weapons, you're going to be able to win all the battles. But what does God say? God says, those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And that's what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter uh, 40. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Verse 31. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They that wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while and the wicked shall not be. Now that's good news. Just a little while. There's going to be a time when in the earth there's not going to be any more sin. There's not going to be any more sin in us. I love what Luke prayed. Lord, help. looking forward to seeing one another without the scars and without the blemishes. And you know what? The good news is Jesus already sees us that way. He already sees us without our scars and without our blemishes. And frankly, I don't know about you Luke, but the more I spend time with with Jesus, the more time I spend time with God, the only scars and blemishes that I really see are the ones in myself. You're you're all looking pretty good from my perspective. But there's going to be a time when there's not going to be any sin in ourselves or in anyone else in the world. The wicked are going to be cut off. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth. There's a promise for you. It's a, it's a, it's a, it seems to be a contradiction. The meek. Why are the meek going to inherit the earth? What's so special about the meek? Moses was a meek man. You know what Moses did when they criticized his ministry, when his own brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, said, you know what, God's made us prophets too. Why is Moses so special? And they started to sort of lead a rebellion against Moses, who had been ordained by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses, it says, was such a meek man that he wouldn't even defend himself. I don't know if he got physically angry or if he just suppressed it. But he was so meek that he didn't say, hey, look, God called me to do this. I was on the backside of the desert for 40 years. I didn't choose this. I didn't sign up for it. God called me to do it. You have to follow me because I'm following the Lord. He didn't do that. He just turned it over to the Lord and the Lord took care of him. And Miriam was struck down with leprosy. After Moses prayed for her, she was healed. It ought to be a warning call for us, a wake up call about submitting to those that God places in authority over us, including in political positions of authority. The Bible says for us as believers to pray for those that are in authority over us, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life with all godliness, I believe. In 1 Timothy 2. The meek shall inherit the earth. Moses, the most meek of men other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was a meek man. What does that mean? Does that mean he was physically weak? No. Does it mean he was in situations where he just didn't know how to respond, so he just sat back and waited to see how it was going to turn out no it means that he had perfect control of his of his emotions of his mind and of his heart, and when unjust things were done and it caused him to be angry, he had that anger under perfect control. And he did get angry. The Bible records times where he was going to heal a man on the Sabbath day, and it says that he looked around him with anger upon those that were watching to see if he was going to heal on the Sabbath so they could accuse him of being a sinner, of breaking the law of God, of doing a miracle on the Sabbath day, and their self righteousness and legalism. He was angry that they cared more about their self-righteousness and their traditions of men than the, the health and the well-being of an afflicted child of God. In the temple, he was angry twice at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry when he saw those ones who had gathered there and they turned the house of God, which is a house of prayer for all nations, into a den of thieves because they were assembled there selling sacrifices and changing the money so they could make a profit off of the people of God. It made him angry, but he had that anger under perfect control. And he funneled that anger and he used it to flip the tables over and to drive out The sacrifices that were being sold there. Nehemiah got angry when he found that the people that were supposed to be leading God's children, they come out of captivity in Babylon and they're rebuilding the temple and they're rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. They're surrounded by uh, dangerous enemies. They're just a small number compared to what they were when they left Israel 40 years or 70 years earlier. And he finds out that the priests and the leaders of the people of God, rather than setting a godly example and teaching the law of God, they have gone. They've married ungodly women. It made him angry. And in fact, in the book of Nehemiah that he required them, he heard some of the children of these these couples, these Men who were supposed to be leaders, godly men in the congregation who had married ungodly, outlandish women. That's where we get the term from. Outlandish women. They were not a part of the children of Israel. It was forbidden by God for them to marry outside of the nation of Israel. And some of these children came up to him and they couldn't even speak the the Jewish tongue, whatever it was, Hebrew or whatever it was. And it says, Nehemiah records, he says, I chased them from me. He ran those children off. And he required the leaders, these men, to put away... They're strange wives. He was angry when he saw the ungodliness going on and the ungodly example that these men were setting. Sometimes it's appropriate to be angry, but the meek have that anger under control. And a word of counsel for parents. You know, we live in a time where uh, spanking and and corporal punishment uh, is frowned upon. And you can find psychologists, I haven't heard arguments about it lately, but I'm sure if you went into Walmart or into uh, the Publix or the grocery store and your child was misbehaving, if you whipped out a switch and spanked your child, you might get somebody who maybe calls uh, child services or uh, at least says something to you. It's not a a popular concept. In fact, I think most people have said, well, it doesn't apply. That's uh, an ancient idea that We've learned and we've grown and we know that's not, that's mistreatment. that's child abuse, right? It's child abuse to spank your children. The Bible says if you spare the rod, you hate your child. So you're going to have to choose. Are you going to believe the modern psychologist or are you going to believe God's Word? But I will agree with them that if you take out the rod and you beat your child when they misbehave in anger, that is child abuse. God's calling us to exercise discipline that is like His discipline, it's loving It's chastisement for our well-being. And if I was a child, I'd much rather get a spanking and have it over in 30 seconds than be put in time out for 15 minutes or grounded for a month. I'd rather just be over and then we can be reconciled. That's how God is with us. So you don't have to be afraid to take God's word literally when it comes to how you discipline children. But if you're angry at your child, you need to just wait till you cool off because that would be child abuse. God always disciplines us in love. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Let me back up and just say one more thing about that. The purpose of discipline and chastisement is not to make your child pay for doing something wrong. It's not to get even with them. It's not to show your frustration that they've just pushed you over the limit and now they're going to suffer for it. They've inconvenienced you. They've interrupted your TV show or your phone call and now they're going to have to find out how... Uh, Angry that makes you. That's not what child uh, discipline is for. Discipline is to correct and to instruct. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. Alright, do you hear that? Verse 12, the wicked plotteth against the just. You may not realize that, but that's what the Bible says. If you're a child of God, the wicked are plotting against you. You've made yourself a target. If you start trying to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, He's given you these promises about delighting in the abundance of peace and inheriting the earth, and that's great. But here's the contrast. Here's the, uh, the flip side of the coin. If you do that, you've made yourself a target. You've painted a bullseye on your back, and the devil set you for, your, for his mark. The wicked are going to plot against you. The wicked plot against the just and gnashed upon him with his teeth. What does that mean? They gnashed upon Jesus with, his, with their teeth. I think, basically, it may be more than this. It at least means you're going to get slandered, your reputation is going to be drugged through the mire. You're going to be uh, falsely represented. Your efforts to serve the Lord, to try to humbly put Him first, to try to crucify your flesh and, uh, and uh, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, that your little feeble childlike efforts to try to serve the Lord are going to be ridiculed and mocked and scorned and probably they'll find a reason to, to say, "Hey, you're doing something wrong in serving the Lord. You're breaking the law. You should go to jail. You should stop that right now. You should stop meeting together. You're, you're endangering society. The wicked plotted against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. But look, the Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. So this isn't, doesn't concern God. He's not worried. God's not fretting about it, so you don't need to fret about it. The Bible says in Psalm 2: He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. I heard about a mayor in Washington, D.C. who said we ought to proclaim Christmas Eve as a day to praise our Savior, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Can you believe that's real? The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Their swords shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume, into smoke shall they consume away. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way." Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. You know the the hymn that we sing? The righteous shall hold on his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Now listen to this this, uh, promise. I have been young and now am old. This is David. David. David says, I've been young and now I'm old. Alright, he's lived a long life. And I want you to listen to this, young people. Listen to what he says. He says, I want to tell you something. In my whole life, he says, there's something that I've never seen. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Now, that's a remarkable thing. Because there were definitely times of famine, times of pestilence. I don't know if David lived through any of those major times of famine. But he says, "...in all of my life I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor the seed of the righteous begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever." The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart, none of his steps shall slide. The wicked watcheth the righteous, and seeketh to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord, and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright. For the end of that man is peace. You know, that reminds me of a brother named Job. Job was considered a perfect man and upright in all of his generations. And he was marked, he was marked by the Lord as that. And the devil <clears throat> lied on Job and said, the only reason Job's serving you, Lord, is because you blessed him so much. And you can read the book of Job and see the agony and the sorrow that he went through. But I just want you to see how it all ends in Job 42, verse 12. It says, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. After all that the Job went through, it's kind of funny. It's almost like God was just humbling him and preparing him to receive the abundance of blessings that God was about to pour out upon him. The latter end of Job was blessed more than the beginning, for he had fourteen thousand sheep and six thousand camels and a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand she asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. Alright, what's the lesson here? I think the lesson is, at least part of the lesson is this. Can you uh, advance and can you get ahead by wickedness and through wickedness and through evil? Yes, you can. Can you get ahead for a while and can you uh, accumulate great riches? Through evil? Yes, you can. But he says the end is what you got to keep in mind. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. He shall save them and deliver them because they trust in him. I want to close with Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesian saints. He says, verse 14. Actually, I'm going to back up to 13. It says, Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. That was Paul's attitude. They could have been discouraged. They could have said, You know, the Apostle Paul, he preached to us, he helped found the church here at Ephesus. He's a faithful minister. We love him. We've, we've supported him in the ministry. And now he's over there. He's in jail. He's suffering for righteousness' sake. He may be put to death. And where's the Lord that he preached about? The sovereign, gracious God that we believe in. Why is God allowing this to happen to him and for him to be afflicted? I've exhorted the church at Hopeland. I want to exhort you here as well. I don't know what the future holds. It may just, Things may just from here just get better and better and better and brighter until the Lord comes back. Or it might not. But whatever happens, I want the church here at Mount Carmel to be exhorted that whatever happens to your preachers and to your pastors that if God forbid for some reason I'm not able to show up at Hopewell next Sunday, that's no excuse for the church not to meet together and to worship the Lord. I believe God will send you a preacher, He'll send you a pastor, but if something happens like it happened to the Apostle Paul and your minister is not able to come and preach to you, you still need to be Faithful to meet together and to pray and to ask God to bless you. There's no excuse not to meet, even if the preacher isn't able to be there. And I've heard the testimony of Mount Carmel before Brother Stephen came here from Texas. How the Lord blessed y'all in meeting faithfully during that period of time. He says... I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul says, it's my, it's your glory. The fact, he says, that I'm suffering for the ministry, for your sake, he says, it's your glory. And then he says, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not sound like he was giving up. It doesn't sound like he was depressed. It doesn't sound like he was discouraged. Certainly he wanted to be there with them. Certainly he wanted to see them face to face. He was happy to be able to write them a letter, but I'm sure he would have gladly have delivered this message in person. But he says, here's how I'm praying for you. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Paul says, I'm praying for you to be strengthened. He says, according to the riches of his glory. Oh, oh, that we might have our eyes and our heart set upon things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, Colossians 3 1, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. The riches of his glory. He says, I want him to grant you, to give unto you according to the riches of his glory, strength with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says this, Now, unto him that is able to do exceedingly, exceeding abundantly, Above all that we ask or think. Isn't that wonderful to think about? The greatest thing that you could ask for. The greatest thing you could even think of. He says he's able to do exceeding abundantly above that. Your best, wildest, greatest Holiest imagination about the greatness and the glory of God and the riches of His grace, He's able to do exceeding abundantly, far, far, far above the greatest thing that you could think or ask for, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. I said that was it, but I've got one more verse. First Corinthians chapter two. First Corinthians chapter two. Uh, one time, I had this idea. And I, sh- I shared it in a sermon that I believe heaven because God is infinite that uh, and we're finite that even when we're sinless, it's not like the glory of God is going to be downloaded into us completely on day one. And we're just going to understand the vastness and the glory and the love of God on day one of heaven. I, I tend to think that uh, the longer you're there, the more there's going to be to learn and the more you're going to appreciate and be in love with Jesus Christ. And be grateful for the salvation that he's accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. I mentioned that one time in a church in Georgia and a brother came up to me afterward and he said, well he says, I want to tell you a verse. He said, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, the Bible says, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. He kind of put me in my place. I thought, well, that's a good verse. I guess I was wrong to say that, you know, to imagine that's how heaven's going to be. He says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which, has, which God has prepared for them that love him. But then I kept reading. I want you to hear the next verse. Verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. So the natural man cannot see, cannot hear, cannot believe And understand the things that God prepared for them. But in some mysterious way, he does say, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So we're not just talking about a relationship where God is over here and you're over here. We're talking about a relationship where God is over here and God is in here. God is working in you. And he says, I'm praying for God to work according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus in you. That's a wonderful truth. That's a wonderful promise that we have. He says... For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So, does that mean that you're going to understand everything right now in this life about what God's given to you in Jesus Christ? Well... Probably not, but here he does say that we're given the Spirit of God so that we might know, we might understand, and we might believe the things that are freely given to us of God. So I think we don't have to wait till heaven. We're looking forward to it, but we don't have to wait till heaven to to believe and to rejoice in what Christ has done for us because he's already given us his spirit. And the spirit's given to us so that we can appreciate what God has freely done for us. He says, "Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth," comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And then but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. In other words, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not going to believe in these things. You're not going to receive these things. You're going to think the most important uh, fact that matters is how much money's in the bank account. That's the, the end all of life. Like George Soros says, he says, the reason I'm here is to make money. And that's how he's lived his life, I'm sure. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And then listen to how he ends it there. Verse 16. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath known the, the, the riches and the glory and the grace that God has stored up for us in Jesus Christ? You who have been made uh, in Christ, it says, of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath known what God uh, intends for his people, for the blessings that he's given to us in Jesus Christ? Who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? It says, but we have the mind of Christ. Because we have God's spirit inside of us. We have the mind of Christ. What a blessing for us in this life. We don't have to wait till, till heaven. In this life, to be able to think about and to meditate upon the glory of the riches that we have in Jesus. The inheritance that's ours through his death, burial, and resurrection. Pray the Lord to bless you, to be encouraged as you try to serve him faithfully. For however much longer we have here. Maybe it won't be too long, but however much longer we have. May we delight in serving him. God bless you as our prayer. Amen.